Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. They were the baddest band on the planet. Profane and powerful, Guns N' Roses rescued rock and roll with a unique sound built by life on the edge. Led by mesmerizing frontman Axl Rose, Guns N' Roses could inspire religious devotion, a riot, or both. But from day one, the Guns' greatest danger was to themselves. Fueled by nonstop drug abuse and outrageous egos, it took just a few years for the group to turn their guns on each other. This is Guns N' Roses, the story behind the music. It's August 2002. In seven years after the implosion of the world's most dangerous band, the reclusive Axl Rose finally emerges with Guns N' Roses at the MTV Video Music Awards. The band's name was familiar, but the faces were not. A lot of people think it's almost sacrilege, <laughs> you know, to do it that way, but he doesn't give a hot Axl's hired guns bore no resemblance to the rock and roll outlaws that had enraged parents and enraptured fans in the 1980s. Their menacing sound fueled by lies of extreme decadence and danger. Me and Duff were drinking at least a half gallon of vodka or Jack Daniels a day, just trying to sort of keep ourselves, you know, like on, on an even keel. They lived it. And that's why, you know, they were one notch above everybody else. They were the real deal. But guns would ultimately choke on their own excess. Less than a decade after shocking the rock world with their seminal debut, Appetite for Destruction, drugs, booze, and runaway egos tore the band apart. Everything was falling apart. Everything was wrong that was going on there. I mean, it was trouble after trouble after trouble, you know, it didn't stop. You didn't know from one minute if it was going to end because of a drug overdose, because of a riot, because of it just imploding. But at the same time, you didn't know if that same day you were going to see the greatest musical performance of all time. Guns N' Roses' rebellious roots were planted on the grimy streets of Hollywood in 1982. With two local misfits named Steven Adler and Saul Hudson, a.k.a. Slash, began amping up their hard rock dreams. Steven started playing drums and I started playing guitar. And uh, we started a band. That's where Guns starts for me. In late 84, the struggling musicians checked out a band called Hollywood Rose at an L.A. gig. 
The group was fronted by Jeffrey Isabel and Bill Bailey, Indiana transplants who'd renamed themselves Izzy Stradlin and W. Axel Rose. To Slash and Steven, Axel's hypnotic performance was nothing short of magic. After the show, I introduced Axel to Slash, and who knew that that was like history in the making, but that was the first time Slash met Axel. I said to Slash, we get that singer and that guitar player. We'll have a kick-ass band. By March of 85, Steven and Slash had joined forces with Axl Rose and Izzy Stradlin. That same month, bassist Michael Duff McKagan cemented the lineup. They called themselves Guns N' Roses. We were a gang. That's how we thought of ourselves. We played rock and roll music to kick your ass. Guns were finally cocked and loaded, and their combustible onstage chemistry quickly offered a dangerous alternative to make-up metal groups like Cinderella and Poison. All these other bands, you know, they had all these band acts and makeup and crap. And we did. We just went out there and played rock and roll. They looked like outlaws. That was number one. The music was, to me, like nothing I had ever heard. We just didn't really give a shit about anything else going on around us. We just had this edge, this sort of unpredictable, scary thing about what it was that we did and that there was no hold barred. And from the beginning, Gunn's hunger for success was matched only by their appetite for excess. Quite often, it was a 24-hour day party. Tupperware is full of cocaine. Literally Tupperwares. Um, everybody was completely strung out and using ecstasy. Nobody drank as much as Slash, and nobody passed out as much as Slash. We were just following in the footsteps of all the guys that we grew up, you know, were our heroes growing up. And then we just took it that one step further. Virtually homeless and constantly migrating from one squalid crash pad to another, guns were single-minded in their pursuit of just two things, partying and rock and roll. These guys were living off of biscuits, gravy, from Denny's, you know, from friends. There was usually at least a few bodies on the floor that you had to step up when you walked in. There was always a song written on a pizza box and empty liquor bottles everywhere. We were always scrounging to find a place to practice or find a place to crash. And back in those days, the best people to know were strippers because they were the ones that were empathetic you know, to your needs. Once on stage, the band served up bludgeoning riffs and Axel supplied the menacing lyrics. The product of an abusive household, Rose was an explosive frontman who used his songs to tackle his demons. As volatile as he is, all the things that you might find complicated or difficult about Axel is what fuels him to be such an amazing performer and such an amazing songwriter. Axel's volatility was both a blessing and a curse. By early 86, Guns N' Roses were the hottest band in L.A. But record labels wouldn't touch him. Nobody wanted to sign us. I mean, even though the people that wanted to sign us, they didn't want to deal with us. Nobody wanted to produce us. Nobody wanted to manage us. Um, and, you know, the club owners were scared of us. Guns N' Roses were a powder keg that could blow at any moment. But in the spring of 86, Geffen Records exec Tom Zutout saw the band at an L.A. club and thought their hard rock sound was worth almost any headache. I basically went to David Geffen and I said, I just saw the biggest rock and roll band in the world. They're gonna sell more records than any band except for maybe Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones. 
Guns N' Roses signed a record deal with Geffen, but few believed they were destined to redefine rock and roll or even survive at all. The label was worried that their explosive investment could combust at any moment. Well, I was worried about them surviving because you can't tell junkies or drug addicts to stop taking drugs. They probably laughed when I said, guys, I mean, be careful. You know, you're going to be the biggest rock and roll band in the world. You don't need to destroy it with this crap. You always kind of thought that, you know, there would be like the explosion and it would all be over or one of them would die or something would happen. We're the bad boys. In August of 86, Geffen got guns into the studio, but the band never allowed a rigid recording schedule to cramp their untamed style. On any given night, uh, terrorizing Hollywood, every morning we'd have to get up and somehow manage to be at the studio by 12. They came in many, many times well hungover. But amid all the chaos, Guns N' Roses were about to make musical history. One of the songs that emerged in those early sessions was a disarmingly sensitive ballad called Sweet Child of Mine. Ironically, Slash came up with its classic opening riff as a joke. We were rehearsing, the young guitarist and then he started playing like a circus kind of thing. You know, and I was like, dude, play that again. What started out as a, a joke guitar riff for me turned into a huge anthem for Axel as far as uh, that relationship that he was in at the time. So it was a very heartfelt moment in his life. Axel's unusually affectionate lyrics were penned as a love letter to his girlfriend, Erin Everly, with whom he had had a tumultuous five-year relationship. When it was good, it was good. And when it was bad, it was horrible. There was a lot of turmoil between those two. And that's all I want to say. Erin was a very nice girl. She was cute as could be. She was just the opposite as Axel. But it also shows a side of Axel, sweet child of mine, that you wouldn't necessarily when you hear all these nasty things about him. But Sweet Child was a rare track of tenderness on an album dominated by incendiary anthems like Welcome to the Jungle. And when Appetite for Destruction was released in July of 87, it bombarded fans with a brutal sonic diary of five musicians hanging on the edge by a thread. They were, you know, they were living, you know, hand to mouth, and they were just all about the rock and the girls and the drinks, and that's what they sang about. That's what they did, and they lived it. It's a, a pretty much a storybook of everything that Axel and the band was going through from, say, the beginning of the 80s all the way up until the record was finished. In August of 87, Guns hit the road for a world tour to support the album, taking their never-ending Hollywood party to inebriated extremes around the globe. There's just a bunch of crazy kids that have just been given the key to every city in the, in the world, <laughs> you know, basically. There were photo sessions when Slash literally was propped up, you know, the head up and somebody behind him, you know, to hold him up so he wouldn't fall down for the photo session. Slash is a very dedicated player. He would go and throw up behind the amps, come back out, keep playing. Smoke on stage, and a cigarette would drop down in between his pants and his stomach. And I'm sitting there watching him going, you know, dude, you're burning up. And he's just doing the solo in pain. The gun's outrageous antics and graphic lyrics were infuriating parents, but delighting fans. 
and in July of 88, Appetite for Destruction climbed to number one on the charts. It was the, the right band at the right time with the right message, and it just happened to, to, to hit the youth of America in a certain way that everybody related to it, which is great. But just as the band reached multi-platinum heights, tragedy brought them crashing back to Earth. On August 20th, 1988, during the gun set at the Monsters of Rock Festival in Donington, England, two fans were crushed and killed by the frenzied audience. And so we finished the gig, our manager didn't tell us about it, so we met up at a pub later on, and I found him in the bar sort of crying, and he told me about that. And it's like, that was the, when the reality kicked in that you can get to this all-time high, something that you can't compare to anything, and then have it go to an all-time low. The deaths at Donington added fuel to a growing critical fire against the band, and to the sentiment that GNR were headed for premature destruction. Next, the guns turn on Steven Adler. When Behind the Music continues. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo.
By the end of 1988, Guns N' Roses had launched a multi-platinum blast of dirt and grime onto the airbrushed face of rock and roll. Just one year after the release of their debut album, they were one of the most popular bands in the world. They were the baddest thing on the block at the time. They had a certain genuineness to them that I think people really attached themselves to. They were what they were, and what you saw is what you got. I had no expectations for it to be such a global event. <laughs> In November of 88, Guns released the EP GNR Lies, a collection that included four new tracks knocked out in a single inspired studio session. Driven by the top 10 ballad Patience, the record would go on to sell 2 million copies. Basically, it was a live session. I recorded everybody in the same room and in a circle, and they all played together, and it was pretty magical. We did Lies record, and it was like a real easy, quick thing to do, which was really successful, which was sort of a shock. One day's work, and it sells like all these copies. Despite their success, controversy constantly threatened to disarm the young guns. Another of the tracks on GNR Lives was One in a Million, a divisive tune with racially charged lyrics that put the band under fire. It hit home with me on a bad level because I'm half black for one, so you start saying the word man, it's very unsettling. But the storm of protest only fueled album sales, and in February of 89, as GNR Lies joined Appetite for Destruction in the top five, the band decided to take a break from recording and the road. But their downtime quickly became an endless succession of wanton days and wasted nights. That's where we really went downhill. That's, that's where I got lost, Izzy got lost, Stephen got lost, Duff even got lost, and Axel disappeared somewhere. Slash didn't know how to entertain himself unless he was on stage or going to a gig or doing something. You know, so what did he do? Wake up, drink, and drink more? I love Slash to death, but his drug abuse was out of control. Steven's drug abuse was out of control. You know, Duff's drinking, um, and Axel's, you know, wild-eyed vision of reality was, was out of control. In October of 89, Guns got an offer to open four shows for the Rolling Stones in L.A. It seemed the perfect opportunity to bring the band back together. But on opening night, Axel made a shocking announcement on stage. He implied if certain members don't stop dancing with Mr. Brownstone, meaning Slash and, and drugs, you know, the band was over. They all were messing around with heroin, but somebody had a real big problem, and if they didn't stop doing it, that was the end of Guns N' Roses. I know it was directed at me because I was all strung out at the time. That was one of the things that probably made me hate Axel more than anything. Something I probably never, ever forgave him for without really even thinking about it. At the time, the tirade seemed to galvanize the band. In the spring of 90, Guns entered the studio to begin work on their most elaborate project yet, a double album of all new material. We all managed to sort of straighten ourselves out, with the exception of Steven. Steven was so locked up that he just couldn't get it together. He was so messed up with junk that he couldn't pull off the tracks. The band had lofty ambitions for the new album, but Adler's debilitating heroin addiction made him a liability in the studio. And the sessions came to a grinding halt. He couldn't play. He would lie to us. And we'd go over to his place and find behind the toilet and find stuff underneath the sink. 
In July of 1990, frustrated by their lack of progress, the band fired Steven Adler, only worsening the drummer's depression and drug abuse. He would eventually suffer a cocaine-induced stroke. I did everything I possibly could to try and kill myself. I had nothing to live for. I mean, everybody that I knew, I thought were my friends, took everything they could from me and disappeared. I would drink a whole bottle of vodka just down it right before the sun was coming up so I could pass out. As Steven spun into a deadly narcotic abyss, the band recruited former cult drummer Matt Sorum. And in September of 90, Guns began laying down the tracks that would make up the epic double album, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. His creative idea of moving forward was, we can't remake Appetite. The next record has to be in another direction. But the impoverished gang of five who'd lived through the turmoil that inspired Appetite for Destruction had drifted apart. And from the start, sessions were literally phoned in. It was impossible to get us into one room, all of us, at one time. It was very dark, and there was a lot of just toxic sort of a feeling in the room. And sightings of Axel Rose were few and far in between. User Illusions was all over the place. It was sort of like the, you know, the Guns N' Roses version of the White Album, so to speak. Maybe not quite as good. It was like all this material coming from all different directions. Despite all the turmoil, Gunn's double album was destined to become a phenomenal success. Few could have guessed that it would also serve as the band's last artistic gasp. By early 1991, Guns N' Roses were both finishing up their ambitious double album and plotting a massive world tour. But as they hit the road, concert crowds discovered that the look of the band had drastically changed. We had a horn section and pianos and all this other kind of crap, which we didn't necessarily want as a band, but it's something that Axel still wants. I remember feeling a bit like, I didn't really sign up for this. I was kind of hoping to join a badass rock and roll band. <laughs> you know, what's with the piano? Just, it just got bloated. It's plain and simple. Always the dominant guns man, Axel Rose now seemed hell-bent on seizing control of the band. Soon after the tour began, he gave Slash, Izzy, and Duff an ultimatum. Sign over the rights to the name Guns N' Roses, where the group would be history. In his mind, the name belonged to him. And if something disintegrated, you know, he wanted to ensure Guns N' Roses' ultimate survival, even if this version of the band broke up. If we didn't sign it, the band was going to break up right then and there. So we just did what we've always done and just kept the thing going. But as tensions mounted within the group, the strain began to show on stage. In July of 91, a concert in St. Louis spun out of control after Axel dove into the crowd and tried to grab a camera from an overeager fan. I jumped off stage and yeah, things went haywire after that. And I maybe I could have handled it better or whatever, but no one was really handling anything at that point. So I took it into my own hands with what I could do. Within minutes, tens of thousands of people were enveloped in chaos. The whole place just collectively destroyed everything. It was one of the scariest things I've ever seen. 
we were in the dressing room, and I remember opening the door, it'd be like people on stretchers, and they were all bloody and just like gnarly. I tell the driver just to get the quickest way out to the state line and get us out. And we drove, you know, here's the biggest band in the world laying down in the back of the van to escape arrest to get and drive to Chicago. It was, it was insane. As the tour rolled on, fans could never be sure what they would get from the guns. Sometimes Axel walked off stage or he didn't show up at all. But at other gigs, he delivered mesmerizing performances that all but overpowered the crowd. He had that, that way of, of talking to the audience and, and, and speaking his mind that they could relate to, but he also had this swagger, like a lizard. You know, and the girls loved that. I cannot recall one show I've seen that she didn't give me goosebumps. He was like the greatest rock and roll frontman ever. Gunn's concerts had become larger than life spectacles, but even that could not prepare them for the hysteria that greeted the release of their long-awaited double album. There has been nothing like the anticipation of user illusions ever. They, they sound scanned a million six hundred thousand records the first week and was just this juggernaut that had not been seen since the Beatles, really. Released in September 91, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 was an imperfect masterpiece, running the gamut from grandly epic ballads to down and dirty rock. It just had a lot of everything, and it was the good, the bad, and the ugly of Guns N' Roses. This is something we were going to pull all the stops, everything we could think of to do that we wanted to do, we were going to do. Guns were both more popular and more divided than ever. As the group began shooting videos for the new album, Axel outlined elaborate, big-budget visions with minimal input from the rest of the band. Everything had to be bigger and better and more grander and more majestic and more money, and he had to splash it, and that he did. For me, the biggest change in Guns N' Roses, I think, was the video when Axel decided that they needed an aircraft carrier and he's gonna jump over an aircraft carrier and swim with dolphins. Okay, <laughs> that was the part that I said, you know what, that's not so street. And that's where we just sort of completely separated. This group of guys is here and this other guy's on this page. By November of 91, Izzy Stradlin had had enough of Axel's iron fist. Just as Guns was amping up for another tour, the newly sober guitarist abruptly quit the group. Izzy felt dictated to and quit, you know. Everybody wished they could go with him, but then you have, you're balancing, you know, your, your, your livelihood with, do I put up with this crap? Just weeks before Guns was to hit the road in December 91, LA guitarist Gilby Clark stepped into Izzy's shoes. He knew he wouldn't be filling them for long. It's just, you know, here, learn the songs, play the songs, here's your paycheck. I knew from day one that it could end tomorrow, you know? The guns got on the road, but from the beginning, the band had little contact with Axel offstage, and even less of a clue when he might turn up for gigs. It was hard, you know, so we had a lot of canceled gigs, we had a lot of gigs where we almost didn't play, we had a lot of, like, walking off the stage and all of a sudden having, it was all very trying, you know? I would be like, come on, you guys. I mean, we got to deal with this. Let's be a band. And every time I'd go out to deal with Axel, I'd turn around and they'd all gone the other way. Like, dudes, you said you were backing me up. We would go down to the show and, you know, you know, you have a cocktail at the show. You have another cocktail. 
And by the time he'd show up, we were hammered, you know, from sitting and drinking so much. And soon the heavy drinking and drug abuse began taking a physical toll on the band. I got a phone call at 5.30, 6 a.m. at my room from the front desk saying, Mr. Reese, one of your uh, band members is passed out in front of the elevator on the sixth or fifth floor. So I throw on some pants, jump, run out my room, and Slash is dead. I mean, d dead, blue dead, but he had no pulse. Paramedics show up, bam, the adrenaline right into his heart. Slash had dodged a bullet, but Duff was killing himself slowly with booze. Duff was in terrible shape, terrible shape. He could barely speak. I'd be on stage and I'd hear, when I look over and Duff would be laid out. His bass guitar on the stage and him passed out. In the summer of 92, despite the offstage fireworks, Guns N' Roses joined Metallica for a stadium concert tour. But on August 8th, at a gig in Montreal, Metallica frontman James Hetfield was severely burned in a bizarre pyrotechnic accident, leaving the guns to deal with an incendiary crowd. Axel could have probably saved the day, but his voice was messed up. He just couldn't hear himself. And, uh chose to leave. I went out to the stage and, you know, they're shredding the place there. You know, I saw bonfires and this is an enclosed stadium. And they just looted everything. There were cop cars overturned. And I mean, I've never seen anything like that. You know, that was my first riot. That was a really sort of embarrassing moment for everybody. It was like, we have no control over this, you know? The guns soldiered on until July of 93. Their final performance was for 70,000 fans in Buenos Aires, Argentina. It was the last the world would see of the original band. Next, the guns come undone. When Behind the Music continues. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, 
the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. On July 17, 1993, Guns N' Roses completed a two-and-a-half-year tour that was the longest in rock history. But as the band touched down in Los Angeles, their future was more uncertain than ever. Even though the family was dysfunctional, they were still a family on the road. Nobody wanted to come home, you know? Nobody really wanted to end, because I think everybody in the back of their mind thought that it was going to be over. In November of 93, Guns released a collection of cover tunes called The Spaghetti Incident. But as they began working on a new album of original material in early 94, Axel's dominating demeanor was stifling the rest of the band. It's not brain surgery. I mean, I've said it a million times. Dude, what are you doing over there? Who are you, Zubin Maida, doing a 72-piece you know, orchestral masterpiece? In December of 94, GNR managed to cobble together a cover of the Rolling Stones' Sympathy for the Devil for a movie soundtrack. It would prove a sonic farewell for Matt, Slash, Duff, and Axel. That's the sound of the band breaking up right there. <laughs> Slash and Duff and them had much less patience for eating the amount of they had to eat to keep everything going. A band is a marriage, and they were bound for divorce court. In October of 96, Slash finally quit the guns, and Matt Sorum and Duff McKagan soon followed suit. In the aftermath, Axel virtually disappeared for half a decade, attempting to reinvent Guns N' Roses with a brand new cast. This is taking a long time. Yeah, but it's also, it's also how do you rebuild something that got so big and replaced virtually every person on the crew, every single thing. Axel took his new guns on the road in 2002, but the North American tour was fraught with cancellations and unraveled after only 15 shows. I think the guy has really fought hard to make Guns N' Roses relevant to whatever was going on, but he's waited so long, whatever was going on has changed a few times. I think he just, in his head, wants to achieve a sort of mythic perfection that may be impossible. Axel's long-awaited Chinese Democracy album was finally released in 2008, after more than a decade of anticipation. As for Slash, Duff, and Matt Sorum, they formed the supergroup Velvet Revolver with former Stone Temple Pilots frontman Scott Weiland. In June of 2004, they released their debut album, Contraband touted by critics as a scathing blast of righteous rock. I'm out on the road, I'm touring, I'm on stage, I've got some of the greatest musicians around me, and that's the most important thing. 
I've been in enough bands and done enough sessions and played enough gigs. After all these years now, I do understand what it is. And finally have that come around a second time is a real blessing. Despite these separate projects, the public's hunger for the original guns remained insatiable. Finally, in 2016, it was announced that Slash and Duff would rejoin the band as the headliners at Coachella. Since then, they have continued touring and are even planning an upcoming seventh album release. But whatever the future holds, the band's legacy will live on. For more than three decades, these Rock and Roll Hall of Famers pillaged the music world and remade rock and roll in their own decadent image. Listen to Behind the Music on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Want more episodes? You can watch Remastered, Best of the Vault, and new episodes of Behind the Music, only on Paramount+. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 